Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another hundred meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. The Denisounts, the Denisounts, the busiest in the biz. You do know who it is, it's Dennis Quaid. That's him. Yes, Dr. Drew, this is Denisounts, and we're coming to you from uh, Montana. And uh, drove up here last week. We drove instead of flying because... Did not want to wear the mask for however many hours that was, but it was great. The kids got uh, their first real cross-country road trip. Oh, that's cool. It was really difficult. And uh, that's the voice of Dr. Drew Penske here on the Renaissance today, here to talk about life, what's going on, and what we hope goes on in the future. <laughs> oh, I wish I wish I had better sense of that, man. I, I'll tell you what. I, I, I'm personally depressed by that very issue, by being unable to sort of plan ahead. I, 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 my whole life has been about what's going to happen in six months and how am I going to do this and having hope and enthusiasm for the future. And I, I can't even, I, I don't know what to think about the future. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, like I said, we're talking about the future and uh, how tough it is to plan. And uh, it's kind of crazy. So, uh, Dr. Drew, are you in... Um... Are you in Pasadena right now? I am in Pasadena right now and uh, sort of hold up. Uh, I've been spending way too much time in this house. Um, but uh, the nice thing has been, uh, you know, we have triplets. I know you have twins. Yeah. And, and um, uh, they're 20, our kids are 27 now. And the, my daughter lives in Brooklyn, but the boys have moved home in the face of all this. And it's been uh, nice. It's been nice having them back in, even though. Yeah. I, I feel like I don't want to handicap them. I want them to go, but there's nowhere to go. It, it's, I, it, they, they too have had their lives sort of closed down by the current situation. Yeah, my kids the same. You know, uh, first it was Zoom school, and uh, and then their camp in Texas was canceled uh, a week before they went, and that was another reason for uh, putting them in the car and coming up here to Montana uh, to give them some sort of a summer vacation and this is just it's kid heaven up here kid heaven dog heaven everything you could possibly think of it's fantastic it's weird how there's there's untoward or these unforeseen aspects of this whole thing I, i'm sure when we look back on this there'll be trajectories that were established during all this some good some bad but uh-huh. uh, getting your kids into montana seems like the good side of it but but you know we just we i i worry about how, how old are your kids they're 12 
Yeah, I, I believe eight to fifteen year olds are going to be profoundly impacted by this time. I mean, think about your own development. How that period, you're just a sponge to the world, and imagine <laughs> you're growing up in a time when you can't see your peers. Everything is shut down. You can't go to school. Your your parents are seem upset and anxious, and you believe you hear on every time you turn on the television that outside is this thing that's going to get you, and it's right. It, it's got to have an impact on their development. And, and we have to be really cautious about that. You know, we have been. And uh, at the same time, they've been going to, they went to surf camp. Well, I wouldn't call it camp. It's surf lessons down at uh, Manhattan Beach. And because they said, you know, the beaches were fine. The heat was fine. It's not going to be there. And then they changed their mind again about that. And it seems like every time we make a plan, uh, somebody in charge changes their mind based on numbers and projections that nobody knows because it's the first time anybody in the world has ever uh, documented this like this. We don't know what the trajectories are, what their what the rates of infection are. It's, it's just a big guess. We don't even know if it's a natural thing or uh, invented in a lab. So we just, we just don't know. That's absolutely correct. And every time you hear politicians say, we're just following the science, that is a load of BS. They're looking at models, not science. They're looking at models. And think about models. Models try to predict the weather. They try to predict the market. And they're trying to predict the behavior of virus. They're, they're very, they're not science. They're just no. statistical models to try to help us understand where we are. No one can predict the future with these things. The, the actions they take are capricious and arbitrary. Please, somebody, show me a scientific study that shows you that somebody has caught this virus in a nail salon. Why did you close down nail salons after requiring them to entirely change their business to make them safer, good, and then you close them down? Uh, in right. fact, at hair salons, same thing. In fact, in Missouri, two days ago, two women with COVID cut hairs for a week. They didn't know they had it. They found out at the end of the week. In that week, they exposed themselves to 139 people with proper mask technique and hand washing and all that stuff, and the transmission rate was zero. And so you close them down too. That's science? No, that's arbitrary. You go into a convenience store or they shut down churches, but they have liquor stores open. I, I don't understand it. You know, we're not going back to school. By the way, I, a, a lot of rhetoric about the First Amendment, which I think is great. Yes. Protect people's First Amendment right to protest, but don't pretend that that isn't a region for transmission. Of course, okay. the, if, that, if transmission doesn't occur that way, there, there shouldn't have been a shutdown in the first place. Yes. And secondly, <laughs> but if you're going to protect it, and if you're going to protect the First Amendment for 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 a demonstration, which I support, you have to protect it for church services too. Then you can't yes. pick, pick which part of the First Amendment you want. So this yes. is the kind of garbage we're dealing with now. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I'm not a scientist. But I do think that the, uh, the the protest did have something to do with the pandemic making a surge. If it didn't, if it didn't, please don't talk to me ever again about shutdowns, because then then you're then you're talking total nonsense. Now the good news is, that yes, it caused some transmission. Of course it did. Of course it did. And yes, maybe that maybe the shutdown early served a purpose while we figured out what was going on. You know. But don't pretend. We've got to pretend things. And by the way, Dennis, when it comes to public health messaging, the public, you lose the public if you are if you exaggerate, if you're hypocritical, if you're inconsistent. I, I've been doing public health messaging my whole career, and 
I, I've watched the excesses result in the inability to change the behavior of, of particularly young people. For instance, the overstatement of the risk of cannabis. Or we were, we were very aggressive in our messaging around HIV and AIDS. Well, now I can't get anybody to wear a condom. And so you, you got to be consistent. You can't be hypocritical and you've got to be clear or you lose people. And that's where people are now just they, they don't want to hear it anymore. I, I quite agree with you about that. You know, to put this into some context, too, you came out recently and apologized for what you called a misstatement or you were wrong. You said about what you thought early on. And I thought that was actually very courageous of you to do. And it shows a lot of wisdom, to tell you the truth, because that's how we get wisdom is, is by our mistakes and self-examination. And But at the beginning, nobody, nobody really knew. Everybody's taking their best guess. The president shut down, traveled to China, uh, and, uh, you know, people called him xenophobic. And, and now everybody's, uh, you know, saying you've got to wear a mask. And it's on both sides, too, I must admit, because, uh, you know, this is not a political thing. It's a, it's a pandemic, for God's sakes. we got to take care of each other and not politicize it. And I'm sick and tired of the, of the politicizing of it. Oh, my God. You can't imagine how I feel about it as a physician. But but I, I'm super moderate. I, I see both sides and I see the excesses on both sides. And so I, I'm not a party person. I'm not a partisan person. And one of the reasons I was so aggressive in my rhetoric in the beginning is I could see I could see what was coming. I could see that the press was going to usurp medicine, that doctors were not going to be in charge of what we are normally in charge of, which is the care of the, the public health system and the, the, the rendering of services to people who fall victim to the pandemic. I could see that, that the, the panic that the press was in was going to start to create untoward consequences. And then, you know, so here it came. And lo and behold, then you have the New York Times board of editorial demanding lockdown. New York Times editorial writers have no business discussing anything in medicine. They should be reporting it and not Mm -hmm. dictating medical care. And now it's almost impossible for physicians to understand what's going on or to get control of this thing. Imagine, uh, I've done a little thought experiment. What what if we we had, this was what what I was trying to get across to people, is that we had a pandemic in 2009. The H1N1 epidemic that killed uh, six six hundred thousand people. It infected somewhere between a half a billion and a billion people. I had it. It was horrible. Were there like something like twenty eight thousand cases in, uh, in the United States before anything was done about it? Oh yeah. Oh no. It, it was. But we. But the point is, we we dealt with it. It was a nasty mm-hmm. outbreak. It wasn't. It wasn't as contagious as this one. It was different. I mean, it's not. But one of the mistakes that I was apologizing for was comparing epidemics to sort of a, a false, it's sort of a faulty uh, logic. But but it is worth now looking back and going, you know, in 2009, it was like the third story on the news. Doctors are taking care of it. It's awful. The, the public health officials are on it. Stay uh, tuned. Watch Dr. Fauci. He'll tell you what to do. And on to the other stories. And you you barely knew it happened. And it killed 600,000 people. Right. Now we're, we're in a complete and total spin panic about this one. And I, I'm not saying we shouldn't deal with this one more seriously. I'm saying the, the divide between you barely knew it happened and total panic seems excessive to me. Yeah, both of these came, uh, those came from China, originated in China. Uh, did they not? Yeah, swine flu was 
documented as being a natural occurring phenomenon, whereas COVID, we don't exactly know yet. Correct. Yeah, there, there, are, there are aspects of the, the biology, or the, really the genetics of this virus that make it hyperinfectious that are sort of characteristic of changes that people use in biowarfare. Not to say that it couldn't occur in nature, it just tends not to. And so that's what has people kind of look. That particular bat that it came from uh, didn't live within 500 miles of that lab or the, the city of Wuhan. Right. Those, those yeah. sorts of question marks. Again, no one is saying there's no smoking gun, but there are question marks. Uh-huh. Well, I don't know. Were the Chinese more forthcoming with the swine flu? It's a great question. I, I don't remember how it because I didn't really you didn't really see it unfold because it wasn't in the press. I just right. remember when it was here and uh, dealing with it as a clinician and then dealing with it as a patient. I do remember it being reported and it being starting to get a little bit scary. And then it just seemed to, to fade. But you yourself had it, you said. And it killed 20 to 40-year-olds, unlike this one, which killed you know 80-year-old plus. That one killed. Right. You know, another thing, I don't know if you feel this way, Dennis, but but uh, I, I think, you know, the fact that this is affecting old people or that, let's put it this way, old people are at the, are at the center of the focus of so much of this uh, conversation around coronavirus. Yeah. It, to me, it, it, it should motivate us to have conversations with our loved ones, with ourselves about what our end of life issues are, how yeah. we feel about nursing homes, yes or no. I mean, because I worked in nursing homes for years and years and years, and I'm very clear. If I go, if I have, if I deteriorate neurologically or physically to the point that I need institutional care, please get a palliative care specialist, call hospice, let me go. I want none of this. The average, the average life expectancy in a nursing home is somewhere between six months and 22 months. And, and I, and they're not, they're not pleasant months. Trust me. No, it's, I've, I've been there many times. My mother was in a, re- a retirement home, and I was just bar- she passed last year at ninety one. And uh, this would be really tough if she was around today. I, I have to admit it. Uh, I get a little emotional about it, but uh, to the worry that I would have about her, she lived a great life. It's eighty. I understand is the is about the average age of people who are dying from the pandemic is correct so have real conversations with people who who are your loved ones in the 80s do they want a ventilator do they want icus i mean those things if you if they deteriorate to the point where they're in that condition the probability of survival is relatively low the probability of a horrible year following that is high and the probability of living beyond a year is almost zero well it'd be a lot better to yeah, it would be a lot better to have that uh, in a personal and a family decision than have that be sort of a government decision, which are basically death boards, right? Absolutely. Or you write this stuff down ahead of time. And, and, and by the way, uh, the kinds of conversations I'm hearing now are kind of interesting, where people aged, like a man age 75 is going, hey, you're asking me to cash in a year of my life. I'm statistically not going to live much past 80 that's one. That's twenty percent of my remaining time. You want me to cash that down to save maybe five more years, and maybe the virus is going to kill me? I want that year back. I'm not going to give uh-huh. you that year. I mean, those are the kinds of conversations you'll have with older people now, which right. is like, don't don't rip. I might take my year away from me. I don't have many years left. Yeah. 
Well, uh, can I ask you what you think about schools reopening? Do you do you have an opinion, or do you have enough information or yourself to even, to have an opinion about it? I'm confused. I got to say, I, I the American Academy of Pediatrics. I I, I looked at two. When it comes to school opening, I looked at two sources. I, Anthony Fauci is somebody that I have been around for my entire career. He's actually the reason I got involved in the radio in 1983. Mm. It, was, it was him telling young physicians to go out and educate about HIV and AIDS. So I looked to Fauci. He's been, a, he's been spot on his entire career. So I, I'm waiting for him to really ring in on this issue. I also would look to the American Academy of Pediatrics. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics has come down strongly in favor of opening schools, mostly because they're concerned about the risk-reward of staying closed. In other words, they're saying, well, some kids are going to get sick, but a lot of kids are going to have social-emotional problems if we don't do this. So uh, let's see see if they all uh, align, whether Fauci and they align. And I think the American Academy of Pediatrics has backed off a little bit. So, again, I'm a little confused. <laughs> the, yes, I get. I mean, the, the school is a place where uh, kids learn to socialize, uh, learn to get along with one another, and uh, where they compete. Just getting out and having vitamin D. And uh, uh, there's so many skills that uh, you can't really get on a Zoom. It's structure. It's uh, structure of society. You know, and we're already losing sports, right? There, nobody's mm-hmm. talking about bringing sports back, which is a major loss for a lot of kids. A lot, 25% of the mental health conditions amongst young people get picked up at school. Kids that are in more problematic family circumstances, it's the schools that detect this and intervene. And all that's going to, that's just sort of, it's just on right now. It's just whatever's happening in these uh, environments where kids are getting abused, it's just happening. It's just rolling forward and no one's able to do anything. And and no one's, see, this is what I, this is my general note is we have politicians making clinical decisions. They're not used to, they're not used to the untoward effects of medical decision-making. But every time we're used to it as doctors, we know every decision we make, including come into my office has potential for harm to you. Uh, it, 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 I, I, we, our system is fraught with difficulties. We have, we make mistakes. I know you've been exposed to some of it personally. I, I know we, we make mis- We take choices over here. It has effects somewhere else, but we anticipate it. We're constantly looking for that. Politicians or leaders are not yeah. used to. And these medical decisions are being used to bludgeon the other side. Uh, with uh, you know, through politics, uh, it's you know if you look at the figures too, going today, I, how many cases have been in the United States? It's it's getting up there, and how many people the the number of people have died is uh, I think it's crested over two hundred thousand at this time. Every year in this country, there are two hundred thousand deaths from medical errors in hospitals that are you're talking about needless yet we're screaming about this when there there's always been something in front of us and but this can be politicized so much easier and uh those are silent and one at a time uh, and, but so. we're not just screaming we're apoplectic you know what i mean yeah. screaming is appropriate this is a dangerous thing we got to be we got to be on it I, I i don't doubt i'm not d- diminishing the importance of paying attention here but the apoplexy we've, we've fallen into is what i'm concerned about and also, what what about the homeless? I know that you you've really worked with the homeless. It is a passion of yours, and I myself have done that. I've been out, you know, to Fifth and Main in Los Angeles. You go down there and uh, take a look, and and uh, everything is piling up now. There's so many homeless that it's exploded. 
really started to become a real problem, I would say back in the 80s. They cut back on uh, mental illness funding for institutions, I believe, and it just let people out on the street. And I do agree with that, that one of the biggest issues is is uh, mental illness with homeless people that just doesn't get addressed. Right. I, I wish we would get rid of the term homeless because if, if somebody's homeless, it suggests that if you give them a home, you solve the problem. Right. Well, nothing could be further from the truth when it comes to the population on the street. There is, I actually give a lecture on this, on how this happened. It essentially goes back to the 1950s and 1960s when some eager beaver psychiatrists set up the National Institute of Mental Health. They convinced President Kennedy to sign the Community Mental Health Act. The Community Mental Health Act was designed to choke off the, support, the funding to state mental hospitals, a system that took 150 years to put in place. Some were good, some were awful. Yeah, they, the, they were the public thought to, that they were terrible. Yes, correct. Sorry. And yeah. they were choked off in favor of community mental health centers whose sole goal, those community mental health centers, was to, quote, prevent mental illness, something we don't know how to do to this day. They made no provisions for what was going to happen for the care and follow-up on the hundreds of thousands of people pouring out of these state hospitals. So they emptied onto the streets, the nursing homes, and the prisons. And since then, we've just continued to make more and more egregious legal decisions, legislation, that makes it more and more impossible to render care to these people. And they're dying like at an extraordinary rate. And in my humble opinion, it's murder. Uh, to, and particularly in California, the laws are at extra, extra ridiculous. Uh, and they're killing my patients. They're killing my right. patients and preventing us from helping them. There's other people on the street who are preying off of, of these people uh, with drugs, with sex trafficking. It's just got to be horrible. Ed, what do you know about how the homeless, how they are doing? They're doing horribly. Like, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an open air asylum. Oh, well, they, they, they've actually had a surprisingly low incidence of COVID. And they have had a high incidence of asymptomatic infection. And the uh, irony is most of the symptomatic infection occurred in people who were brought inside. So if you if you go into a shelter, you were a little higher incidence of symptomatic COVID. But generally, they've done remarkably well. So for some reason, whether it's the UV light or being out of doors or the lack of proximity, because they are pretty spread out, um, they are doing pretty well with the COVID. Now, will they continue to do well remains to be seen. Yeah. What about uh, doctors and healthcare workers. There's this, maybe it's an, uh, you know, one of those myths or, that we hear, but sort of the idea is that doctors are around sick people so much that they uh, build up immunity to certain diseases because they just take it on. But uh, you know, COVID is supposedly different. I mean, I don't under, I don't get that one either. But it, it's well, <laughs> they, they they use they are they use us. You know, COVID is transmitted like like a common cold. It's, you know, it's respiratory tract to respiratory tract, right? So if you cover your respiratory tracts and use careful technique, you're, you're not going to transmit. It's not like influenza that transmit multiple ways. It, and, and by the way, influenza primarily transmits through children to adults. COVID almost never does that. It's just a different kind of a thing. And you can possible to protect yourself. There's a weird thing going on now. I'll tell you what, Dennis, there's a guy named Vladimir Zelenko, who I interviewed the other day, 
who is so convinced that the combination of hydroxychloroquine and zinc is an effective not just treatment but also prophylactic agent he has stopped wearing protective gear he takes care of thousands of covid patients and he is he is exposing himself actively to the virus to make the point that this combination is effective as a prophylactic agent so there's a there's an experiment going on here we'll see if he gets it hmm. it's going to be interesting the virus is not mutated at this point. They're, they're looking for a vaccine for it, which they're working on. It usually, typically, uh, even the best case scenario, it's 18 months, I believe, to get a vaccine uh, going or find one if they can. Uh, so that, that puts us uh, about a year out from that. What about a round two? Is uh, it, If there is another season of this thing, this is a question I think on a lot of people's minds. Will it will it mutate? Will it be a different virus that needs like a different vaccine, just like every year we get a different vaccine for that particular strain of flu? Right. So you're you're asking really four really complicated questions. So <laughs> let me let me let me let me try to back my way into them. The the, the mutations do occur, um, and it, there has been some mutation already that has, has conferred conferred upon the virus greater infectivity, greater ability to be contagious, yet they've not seen that actually clinically manifest. So they're seeing some mutations that should make it more infectious, but it's not becoming more infectious. So that's interesting. But because they are directing the vaccine primarily at the spike proteins on the coronavirus, those are very, very stable. Those are very stable. Those don't change over time. And so, so the coronavirus unlike influenza does not change enough to need multiple vaccines or yearly vaccines. So that that's the second question. So we, we uh-huh. may need to take a vaccine every year to boost up our immunity, but we're probably not going to need different vaccines every time. So that's a thing. Now you mentioned the different vaccines there, are, you know, like a half, there are a dozen now vaccine candidates wanted this new novel technology around RNA. I've signed up to be a human subject with the RNA virus, uh, the phase three trial. I, uh, what through your own antibodies, or just uh, to be injected with the dead virus? To be not dead virus. It's actually an it's, RNA that actually instructs your T cells and B cells to produce antibody. And this oh. is the, this is a really interesting technology, oh, okay. and the science looks amazing. And I and I'm happy to be human subject on it. So so I've signed up through the CDC. They've not called on me yet, but 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 because they know exactly what they're doing, what they're targeting, and they already have safety profile on phase one and phase two, they can move right into phase three. Now that usually goes a year to 18 months. My bet is that if they see an exuberant response, they will start providing it to high risk individuals and frontline workers late into 2020 or early in 2021. Uh So, so when people say there'll be a vaccine, well, Uh it won't be a widely distributed vaccine. You may be right. Maybe a year. And that's, that's basically the, the real, the real start of, traditional flu season as it were right and and that kills sixty thousand people a year and, and you know right. again we got to keep that in mind that flu kills too and yet people <laughs> yeah. people don't even think about that they don't even consider yeah it's 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 pretty amazing it's, it's i think the rule was is that you can go to school but if you you know if you get a fever uh, the night before you don't go to school it's easy but uh another interesting thing i talk about is Health-wise and also mental health-wise, the, the world is changing and it's changing so fast about how this is going to affect us in the long term. Uh, I know like with the 1919 uh, outbreak, 
that it was a good year and a half, two years before, after things died down, before people felt comfortable enough to go about their daily business again, to get back into things they do in life. Yes, yes. So, so let's, there, I didn't answer the fourth part of your question, which was the second spike question. Yeah, I don't. I think. I think it is just. I think what we're going to see is just we're going to be living with the virus at higher or lower pitches. In other words, right now we're in a bit of an uptick, and we're going to stay in that kind of higher daily. I don't think we're going to kick into the exponential growth phase. I think we're going to sort of stay in a in a in a pattern, and it may go down, and it may go back up again. But I I don't because it didn't. I was talking to Dr. Charles Murray, who runs the University of Washington models at uh, covid19.healthdata.org. It's a, it's a website I follow. It's kind of, again, it's models. It's just general ideas. It's not predicting the future. It just helps us kind of see where we're at, where we're going. And um, he said, you know, the best thing is if it doesn't go away during the summer, be, and because then there will oh, really? be a second peak. Yeah. yeah. Ah. Then there will be. So the fact that it's kind of trundled along means it's just going to be with us and it could break out, but it's not technically going to be too you know, two outbreaks. It's just going to be with us. But back to 1918, not only did it take three to five years to recover, again, hard to tell because it was, of course, the backdrop of World War One. but one of the most famous psychiatrists in the country, a guy named Menninger, chronicled all the neuropsychiatric consequences of the, of the virus. And there was neuropathies, there were psychoses, there were depressions, there were schizophreniform reactions. There was, you know, just general anxiety. I mean, the, uh-huh. the, the neuropsychiatric consequences were both directly viral related on the brain, a lot, very common. And you now start to hear people going, oh, my God, there are people complaining about things after they get well. Yes, that's uh-huh. what happens with a virus like this. Uh-huh. And as you mentioned, the ability to sort of regain our lives and feel comfortable again, it takes a while. Plus, the economic waves that are going to I mean, it's going to take a while to recover from this thing. There are landmines everywhere, and we we can't see them. Right. That's the thing. We can't see them. And there's nobody who could really predict. We can make our best guess, and we can prepare as well as we can. Really, it's about preparing for the worst-case scenario, is it not, in the end? I, this is a really interesting question. That, that, that is a That's a loaded question, too, Dennis, because... I do believe that certainly our public health officials have to have their eye on the worst case scenario. I believe that our decision makers should be paying careful attention to worst case scenario, but in every decision they make, realize if they strictly respond to worst cases, they're going to have all kinds of other unintended consequences. That maybe there's a way to navigate between worst case and being ignorant, you know, that, that you can, and that's what medicine's about. It's trying to make the right call, you know, and so they're being, they're being asked to make that kind of a, of a decision. You're talking about a moving target. I mean, they brought out the, what supposedly was the worst case scenario right at the beginning of this pandemic when they started having the meetings. They were saying 2 million people in the United States alone could die. The infection rate, uh, which we weren't getting infection rates from China at all. Uh, the best we had was Italy and Europe. It caught everybody by surprise. And uh, uh, so, I, you know, I remember those moments, right? I remember being in that fog of war. And when uh, Governor Newsom shut down California, I thought, oh, that is excessive. But I thought, well, he's he's looking at the worst case. It's a really tough decision. My my 
my responsibility is to back this leader in his decision making. And so I, I fully, yeah. I fully supported him. I understand it's tough. It's, you know, he, he really kind of had to prepare for worst case. And, and he's still in that mode. I, see, I've been critical since because you, now you back off. Now, once you figure out what's going on, now's the time to be a little more nuanced in your decision making. And interestingly, somebody, a reporter asked uh, the L.A. County uh, uh, head of the L.A. County uh, uh, Department of Medicine yesterday, you know, what, if, if we have more hospitalized and more cases than back during the lockdown, why aren't you sounding the alarm this time? And she essentially said, well, we didn't really know what we were doing then. And I thought, well, that's right. honest enough. That's, wow. that's true. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. had to figure things out, which is true. I appreciate her honesty about that. Yeah, I can't figure out the numbers. I, I just can't. <laughs> Reopening is, as far as we were talking about schools reopening and stuff, and, and that comes down to really as each state has its own decision-making process that goes along with that, do they not? They Not only each state, but each county and each school board. And, and uh, I think, I, I, you know, I don't know how you feel, but I, I always feel that the, the more centralized from on high, 3,000 miles away, the worst it is for yes. the local community. This, yeah. the, whole, the, the idea that this all should be federally mandated is insane to me. I don't even like the state mandating it. I think this should be county by county. Some counties have no cases, and some counties yeah, I, are in I, trouble. I quite agree. Up here in Montana, uh, they've had, I think, three cases in uh, this county. You know, I think kids were, uh, they didn't shut down for, or maybe they shut down for a week, but they were, I think they may have been going back to school and they're planning on it here, I believe. It's local, local is always the way to go because all politics really are local too, by the way. People's needs when they live in a group in that particular locale and one size doesn't fit all. When, when Alexis de Tocqueville in 1822 came to the United States to essentially study the penitentiary system, but he ended up writing a book called Democracy in America, he was a Frenchman, an aristocrat, studying this new thing called democracy because he thought it was coming to France. Mm. And uh, he, he said the, the, the reason it worked was that Americans practiced democracy local. It was the practice of democracy. It was the participation in local townships, in counties, in school boards. And it was the practice of being democratic locally that allowed it to be translated up to a more uh, a state and then federal system. Locally, it's anything big. It's never going to work out, I, <laughs> right. if you ask me. It's just tough. Bottom line. It's just really tough. You know, I hope we're having a different conversation uh, next year. I would love to have you on the show next year and, and, and see where we are with that. Please. Let's, yeah. that's a, I love that idea because it gives me hope. It gives me hope that in a year from now, we'll have a very different conversation, which will be yeah, great. Yeah, hopefully we'll be doing it in person uh, in a crowded room. <laughs> It'll be great. Yeah, but I, I, I want to know, uh, you sing opera, do you not? I used to back in the old days. I. Um, Your mother was an opera singer. My mother was an opera singer. You've done your homework. And yeah. uh, for for about five minutes, I thought I would maybe do that. And I thought better of it very wisely because I am a terrible musician. And I have a son who actually went to a music conservatory who's an excellent musician. I started playing piano. Yeah. It's excellent. Really good. The, the distance between him and I is gigantic. <laughs> so I'm glad I didn't make that effort. And, and Well, you seem to have those two strains of medicine and... and uh, and uh, the arts. Uh, it, it's in, weird how many doctors family. do. At least back in the day, it was weird how many of them, of them did. And then I recently did the Mass Singer, which was just fun. I, 
I thought, you know, when I saw that show, I thought I'm, they should put me on that. And next day I was talking to the producers. And, and but when, as a result of it, though, I, I found out I have a, a vocal cord problem. I have a varicy in my cords and I have the hemorrhage really? in my cords and I have reflex. And so I, I knew that my singing had been, to say I lost a step would be an understatement. Of, well, they need exercise too, you know, their, their muscles. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. but, I, but not, my mid-range is just gone. Really? Well, I would love to hear you sing sometime. Well, and, when we uh, do the in-person in, in next year, maybe we'll think about that. We'll prepare for that. Let's put it that way. Yeah. We'll, we'll sing God Bless America. It'll be there nice. you go. <laughs> I've really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I really admire you uh, through the years. Ed, I think you're doing great work out there, Dr. Drew, and keep it up. And uh, Thanks, man. I, I, I always, until recently, like like the last couple of months, I have. I was always uh, deeply grateful for everything I got to do because it, it, I didn't start up my career with any of this in mind, and to be able to do all these different and creative things and make a difference in a positive way it was extremely gratifying, and uh, and I'm so grateful to have had these opportunities. Now, right now, I'm a little depressed because of all the situation we're in, but uh, I'm sh- I feel reasonably confident that the like oh, you've just given me that some of that confidence by talking about getting together next year it's like so, somehow just that hope is enough yeah. to kind of help well every musician i know they just took this year's tour schedule and just put it to next year so i want it to happen so bad <laughs> yeah all right my friend all right man uh, good you, to talk to you you have a good rest of the day and god bless Thanks, you buddy. no you all too right. If you want to hear more from Dr. Drew, you can go to drdrew.com, where you can find Dr. Drew After Dark and Dr. Drew TV for all his live streaming shows and podcasts. Okay, here's how Miro works. See, it's amazing. What's everyone doing at David's desk? Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com.